Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather as a body today. Oh, to be reminded of your grace, to be reminded of our desperate need of your grace because of our sin. God, thank you. Father, we are mindful that you have provided in our country men and women who have served our country. They have protected us. They've advanced, uh, Father, our protection. And we lift up the veterans, Father, who have served. Uh, God, we recognize that because of the pr protection you have provided, we can worship you in spirit and in truth, Father, and in freedom. And we are thankful for that. Uh, God, we're mindful that the world has wars going on. Father, we are mindful of Israel and Hamas, Lord. And we are aware that Christ is the savior and the hope of both nations. God, would your gospel go forward in the midst of conflict? Father, would, you, would your Messiah be preached? And would hope fill the hearts of men and women who are in war right now? God, we recognize uh, that we need to be reminded that you are the God of the nations. That your word has gone forward and your heart's desire is for the nations to praise you. So God, we're mindful of this even in war. Father, we're mindful of the unreached people groups. Uh, the unreached people group that Father Nikki, our own missionary, is ministering to, Father. Amongst the Arabs this morning in Chad. God, there is very few, if any, Christians amongst them. Oh, God, would you bring your gospel of hope to them? Would you be with our sister and her team and strengthen them, Father, through your grace and your mercy? That they may be able to proclaim amongst the people who do not know who you are. God, be with me now as I open your word. A dying man preaching to dying people. All of us, Father, desperate of what your word has to say today. So, so, so speak. I pray that I would decrease, that you may increase, God. And that we would hold tightly to you and worship you from our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What are some common discouragements in your life? Dis discouragements can come in a plethora of ways, and I think we know that. From unmet expectations to lingering seasons of suffering to a lack of confidence to confusion to being overwhelmed by duties that we have by lingering sin as we have prayed about. Discouragements can come in a lot of different ways. One author, John Bloom, said that discouragement is a temptation that is common to man. Referencing Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 13. And in dealing with discouragement, sometimes we need to do so with tenderness. Other times we need to do so with toughness. But we are always to fight against it, never to tolerate it. And discouragement is one of those things that I'm sure many of us walk into the room with today in, a many, uh, in a many different ways. When you are discouraged, here's pushing in a little deeper, when you are discouraged, where do you tend to turn? 
Where do you, where do you run when you are discouraged? Oftentimes, we run for, towards comfort. We want to be removed from our discomfort, from our discouragement, and we want to be placed into a more comfortable situation. Now, comfort is not a bad thing, but the problem with comfort is we seek comfort in all the wrong places, do we not? Uh, we look for comfort in uh, areas of escape or perhaps in running to sin. Uh, things that we put uh, our comfort in, our hope in, in the midst of comfort cannot withstand the weight of our discouragement. And ultimately those things that we run to will crumble and they will fall. We are to be reminded today through God's word that it is God himself who provides comfort. Comfort in the midst of our discouragement, as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, blessed be the name, uh, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Beloved, we find encouragement amidst discouragement in the Lord himself. He provides our comfort. Now, if you remember last week, we learned that Israel was back in the land and they were preoccupied uh, with building their own houses instead of building the house of the Lord. As they were commissioned to do by King Cyrus of Persia as God moved in his heart. We see in Ezra chapter 3 and 4 that the foundation of the temple had been established, had been laid. And adversaries had risen up soon after, known as the Samaritans, and they came against Israel, and it ultimately discouraged Israel from building the temple anymore, and it sat there for 16 years. That is some deep discouragement, until God raised up Haggai with his word on his lips, and the people responded to it, and they repented, and they began to build once again the house of the Lord. Now, between chapters 1 and chapters 2, we see about a month has passed. And the people have moved in their hearts from apathy, not really caring about the worship of God, to a place of discouragement or despondence, wanting to be obedient but not exactly knowing how to be obedient and what to do. And that's where we are today. Now, a driving question for us from the text why is, it, why is it that the people of God always have hope, however, amidst our discouragement? We are with hope, are we not? And this is something that I want us to keep in the middle of our mind. Haggai will speak to us today as the people of God, and he will remind us of the presence of God. And the presence of God is always with the people of God. Haggai will also remind us of the power of God to accomplish his plans, and he will remind us of the promises that God has made in order to bring peace one day. So wherever you are in your discouragements today, the word of the Lord is going to bring encouragement as we see the presence of God amongst us. And that really kind of forms our big idea. Amidst discouragements, we can turn to the Lord and be encouraged by his presence by his power and by his promises. 
And so that is where we are today. And before we get to the encouragement, we have to first look at the discouragement. And we'll find the discouragement in verses 1 through 3. Look with me there in verse 1. These people were living in real discouragement. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Now, this marks Haggai's, if you remember from last week's second sermon of four, throughout a four-month time period. And so when he says the seventh month of the 21st day, that's October 17th, uh, according to our calendar, and that's the year 520 B.C. But this is a significant date because it's the last full day of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, if you remember back in the Old Testament. Now, we know in Ezra chapter 3 that the people of God had already instituted this uh, festival back into their worship. And during the feast, just as a quick reminder, uh, households uh, of Israel stayed in tents for about a week to symbolize for all the generations, all the descendants of how God's people lived in tents or booths for 40 years after they were delivered out of Egypt while they were in the wilderness. And we see this instituted in Leviticus chapter 23. Now, they would have been working on the temple for a few weeks before the, uh, before the, the festival uh, began. So they hadn't accomplished much in the rebuilding of the temple. And so if you think about it this way, they're coming from their paneled luxury houses. The prophet has now spoken to them, and now they're coming out of this, these booths, these tents, for a week. And they're seeing that they have a lot of work ahead of them. But God is trying to bring them to see something that's going on in their life. It's, it's actually better to live in tents than to live without a tabernacle amongst them. It's not as good to live in paneled houses when the house of the Lord is not being built. And so the word of the Lord through Haggai and the festival itself is reminding the people that they are completely dependent on God. And look who Haggai addresses again. He says in verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say... And then verse 3 is the proof of their discouragement. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your eyes? Now this verse sort of reveals the contents of the people's hearts. There are people who are building this house who had seen the glorious temple that Solomon had built. In fact, we kind of get to peer behind the curtain a little bit in Ezra chapter 3 to see the people's response when the foundation is laid. Verse 12 of Ezra 3, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and that sound was heard from far away. Now imagine this, as you come off the fields uh, with your families in the tents. There's a foundation that's been laid, but there's a giant pile of rubble and stone and resources and tools scattered about. There's a lot of work that's ahead of Israel, and they know 
that the resources that they have to rebuild the temple pale in comparison to the resources that Solomon had. And in fact, as they, as they build this, they know in the back of their minds that it's not going to be as glorious a structure before them. 1 Kings 5 and 6 tells us that Solomon had at least 180,000 workers banging away on this temple, which took about seven years. And, and if you remember from Ecclesiastes, Solomon had more resources, Israel had more resources than anyone who ever existed. And yet here Israel is with less than 50,000 people, not near the amount of resources. And so you can see how discouragement would set in on a people. It's going to take three times the amount of time to build, and when we get to the end of it, it's still not going to be as glorious. That's discouragement. Now here's the danger for Israel was to look back and to think that the most glorious days were behind them. To think that God had a golden age that once was, that will never be again. Fewer resources, fewer men, uh, fewer hope that accompanied this whole situation. And so they had a temptation to believe that the best days were not now and the best days were not before them. And this has come up the last several weeks in our sermons, has it not? Looking behind rather than looking ahead. We saw this in 2 Peter and we saw it last week in the text. Beloved, do you have a tendency to look back and to think that whatever is behind you is better? That's the same challenge that Israel is facing. How easily we are discouraged into thinking that no matter what is going on in our life now, is not as good as what we've already experienced in this life. Many of us who have walked with God for, uh, for years, we've seen this unstoppable decline of the Western church. We used to fling the doors open in the 90s and the early 2000s, and people from the nations would just come in and learn about Christ. That doesn't happen the same way that it used to right now. And we have a tendency to think that we're not reaching as many people. Or maybe we're uh, paralyzed by the idea that uh, we need to make America great again. Because America used to be better than it was. Beloved, I want us to be reminded that the God who is God of America, of the church many years back, is the God of America and the church today. And we need to be reminded of that. Nostalgia can seduce our senses. It does this in a tricky way. We, it, we should always be thankful for our past. Uh, recognizing God's provisions, recognizing God's grace and the experiences that God lets us walk in and, and have. But nostalgia can actually blur our senses to experiencing what God would have for us today. And ultimately, I think that's exactly where the people of God are here in chapter 2 verse 3. Now, Haggai is a prophet, but he's also pastoring the people here in a sense. And if we were to take a deeper consideration of this, I want us to think on this idea. It's almost as if with that question, uh, those questions in verse 3, that Haggai is recognizing that the temple's not going to be as glorious as it once was. He almost wants them to admit this, to admit their grievances. 
to admit their disappointment. But he does this before he encourages them. In fact, uh, Haggai is priming their hearts for some encouragement. You think about it this way, he's pointing out their sin. The reason that Solomon's temple is no longer is because of the sin of Israel. They had worshipped other gods. They, have, they were put into captivity. The temple does not stand now because they had abandoned the very God who said he would never abandon them. It's a clear picture that that temple does not stand because of the dangers of sin. And he brings them to that point to see the destruction of their own choices. But beloved Haggai does not leave them in their discouragement. In fact, he provides three encouragements for them to consider, and all of them drive us back to the Lord himself. I don't know what you came into this room with today. I don't know what your discouragements are. If you are, are, are waiting a doctor's report, if you have a, a, an ailing child or an ailing parent, if you're waiting in a job that you don't like anymore, waiting to do something different, I don't know where we are. But my prayer for you this week, beloved, is that you would see in the midst of your discouragement that God has not left you. And he is there for you. And Haggai just drips encouragement for us to consider. And the first one is found in verses 4 and 5. Be encouraged by God's presence. Because of his covenant. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I have made with you when you came out of Egypt. You see that little phrase, yet now? So he, he's, he's taking them to look back first at the old temple. And then he's saying, look, yet now... And he says three times, be strong, Zerubbabel, be strong, Joshua, be strong, all people. And then he says to work. Uh, and and is, he, is, he, is he saying to just get results? Is he saying to depend upon their own strength? No, he's actually bringing them to the anatomy of deep encouragement. And look what it is. He says, work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. That is the remedy that he brings to their hearts to remember that the almighty God is with them. And when God is with us, a great work will be done. Haggai doesn't try to make them feel better in some artificial way. He doesn't encourage them to depend upon their own skill sets. He knows the, the, the discouragement that the mound of rubble and the, the, the lack of desire is presenting before them to construct this temple. He knows that. But then he brings a remedy that is better than, this, than, than the temple itself. It's a reminder of the very presence of God. And that is a deep encouragement. The scriptures say many times, almost two dozen, that God is with us. I am with you. I am with you are the same words that were spoken to Joshua when Israel first entered that promised land. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, says the Lord. Just as I was with Moses, you see this in Exodus 3, so I will be with you, I will not leave you, and I will not 
forsake you. God was with uh, Israel even when they were in slavery. God was with them when they were delivered out of slavery. God was with them in the 40 years of wilderness wandering. God was with them when he gave them the promised land, just as he said here to Joshua. And he says yet again, I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, the mighty one, the, the, the God of all angel armies. He is with you. Beloved, this is the pledge that God makes to his people. And Christ made the very same oath in Matthew chapter 28 to the church right before he ascended to the Father's right hand. He said, lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the character of God. We are tempted to believe that God abandons us when we sin. We're tempted to believe that God abandons us when we are sad or that God is some cruel father who interacts with us only one he wishes and however he likes. Would you kill that thought today? Would you ask God to help you put that thought to bed because God cannot leave you. It is against his very character and his very nature. When we fail and we often do, God reveals his grace towards us yet again in Christ. Perhaps we're tempted to think, like we just talked about, that the best days are behind us. But just as Haggai is reminding the people, we need to be reminded that the living one is still with us today. So how is that a bad thing? How can yesterday be better if God is still with us today? It's a thought that I hope we take to our own souls to, to really question and ask ourselves. He is with you. He is doing a new work, and he will complete that work. That's what it says in Philippians 1.6. God who starts it will complete the work. George Swinnick, a faithful Puritan pastor, encouraged his congregation to meditate on the mercies of God from their life now to their birth. All that God has done for them, all the dangers that you have been delivered of, all the journeys that you've walked in and been protected through, the seasons of help and provision that God has provided, and you can't explain it. The counsel that you have received on your darkest days from the word of God. He has always been with his people. And he will always be with his people. And this is, as I said, his character. But this character, look in verse 5, is actually sealed with a covenant. He made this covenant with Israel when they came out of the land of slavery. And his presence sealed the covenant. And we see this uh, in Exodus chapter 19 through 24. God made a covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant with Israel saying that he was going to be with them. And just as he delivered the people of Israel out of 400 years of slavery, he has now delivered these people out of captivity and slavery of Babylon and Persia and brought them yet again into the promised land. He's, he's, he's boasting in the presence of God with the people of God, and it's never stopped. What an example that God has not left them. He may be slower and more patient than, than his people can comprehend, 
than you and I can comprehend. He, he, he might move slower and it might be more discouraging to us, but beloved, he always delivers his word and he never vacates it, which means he never vacates his promises to you. He is always with you and he seals that. He double stamps it in verse six by saying, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. This is, this is huge. Israel, you can now work because my spirit remains, he says. And, and that remains is an ongoing action of God with his people. Without the spirit, beloved, work does not get done. But with the spirit, the presence of the spirit, and the people's obedience joining God's command, work begins to be accomplished for the glory of God couple of things I want to drive into our, our hearts just regarding the presence of God. First and foremost, the presence of God has nothing to do with your goodness. Not a single thing. Not your successes, nor your failures. But him. He is him who saves. He alone is the one who does great things. God himself provides his presence because he is a good and gracious God. He scoops us up. He cares for us. He knows that we are deaf, dumb, and blind, and worse than that, we're even dead. And so he knows he must be with us if we're going to do anything. He is with us, not because of anything that we have done. Another takeaway from this is I want us to remember that the work of God that he has asked us to do, just like the people of God here to build the temple, he will be with us in also. So often we can look at the things that God has asked us to do, like the Great Commission, and go, where do we start? What do we do? But if he has asked us to join that work, we can get to work knowing that he's going to be with us in that work. And that will burn off our fears, and it strengthens us knowing that God is with us. Lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. We're going to talk about that a lot in 2024. So, beloved, whatever you're going through in life right now, discouragements of the massive trials that you're walking in, or the mundane things of normal life, consider what Zechariah says, that the trials refined you and it burns off all the dross. We're constantly moving forward with God helping us. Psalm 37 said he's lending a hand to help us. Do not forget that God is with us. The second way we can be encouraged is found in verses 6 through 8. Be encouraged that God's power will accomplish his plan. Look with me in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. So now he turns to the future after saying presently he's going to be with them. And he says he will, God will shake the heavens and the earth and the dry land. The almighty God, the Lord of hosts, will do this. He can do this. And look what it says. He will, future tense, do this. And look that little phrase there in verse 6. Yet once more. So on the heels of the Exodus reference, uh, God shook the earth when he made the covenant at Sinai. If you go read Exodus chapter 19, we see that the presence of God, when he begins to fulfill that covenant with Moses and the people of God, the earth shook. And so when we see that it says yet once more, 
He's saying that in a little while, he's going to do a work just like this, just like the covenant that was inaugurated with Israel. Now, when you and I say a little while, we mean 1215, right? Lunch. But when God says a little while, we need to remember what the Apostle Peter tells us in, in chapter 3 of, uh, of 2 Peter, uh, that the day of the Lord is a thousand to us, but it's only one to him. He doesn't count time the same way that we do. So in a little while, he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And I want to submit to you today that, yes, he's going to shake it in many different ways throughout creation. He's going to intervene. But if we were to interpret scripture with other passages of scripture, I want us to consider Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 for just a minute when we look at this passage of God shaking things, okay? And it should be up there on the screen. And this is, uh, this is uh, the writer of Hebrews expositing what Haggai said. He said, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has, uh, now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So the writer of Hebrews is still looking at this in the future tense, even from the writer of uh, the book of Haggai. And, and, beloved, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. We, we talked all throughout the book of 2 Peter. Isn't this so neat how God ties his books together? The, the scripture is one theology for us to interpret and to understand. And he is letting us know that he is going to shake it up again, just like we talked about in 2 Peter. When Christ comes back, he is going to do this work. When God does glorious work, he shakes things. And the things that burn off are the things that were not meant to remain. But the things that last, the covenant things, those things last forever, as the book of Hebrews has just reminded us. We see in creation in Genesis 1 that, that the earth was created in a powerful, demonstrative way. We see in Psalm 77 that the people of God were delivered from Egypt through the passing of the Red Sea and the earth quaked. We see that the, that the earth shook when Christ died. We saw that the earth quaked and shaked when Christ rose from the dead in Matthew 27. And here, when Christ returns, he's going to shake it again. This is what our God does. So wherever you are in your discouragement, we need to remember the power of God to accomplish all his plans. This shaking has the people looking forward to a new work. As we see there in verse 7, now he includes the nations. I will, and excuse me, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, there is an interpretive challenge there in verse 7. A lot of different ways uh, you can interpret that. Two primary ways. One is an immediate context, and the second is an ultimate uh, um, fulfillment. And we're going to look at uh, both of those. In the immediate context, the God who owns and supplies all wealth to build the temple, he's going to shake the nations to do it. He, all, all the wealth in the world, the gold and the silver, as it says there in verse 8, belong uh, to the Lord. 
God used Egypt to build Solomon's temple. He's going to use uh, the king, uh, uh, the kingdom of Persia, to build uh, this temple. And uh, this is actually seen in Ezra chapter six, verse eight, as Darius, who is the king of Persia, makes a decree. Consider these words. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay for the, from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Uh, we see that Israel didn't have anything and, and God's saying, I'm going to supply everything. And he ultimately does, as it says in Ezra 6. He's going to shake the pockets of the nations and he owns the, the wealth anyway. And it's just a good reminder that we don't have any resources in us to do any constructive work to build anything that is eternal or kingdom-minded. But like Israel, we are reliant upon the deep, rich pockets of God's mercy who constructs and provides all resources for his work, especially considering our own salvation. But I would also like to submit to you that there is a, yes, a physical fulfillment, but there is a spiritual one as well, a greater fulfillment when we think of all of redemption history. For God has promised something better than a glorious temple. He has promised. Like all messages in the Old Testament have Christ as the center of every single promise. He's the yes to every single promise. And in fact, it's quite interesting, this, that word for treasures, as you see there in verse 7, the treasures of all nations, it can actually and should be translated in the original Hebrew as the desired one or the desired of all the nations because it's singular. And it's referencing, in my opinion and the opinion of many theologians and scholars, that he's referencing to Jesus Christ himself who is going to shake the nations with the desired one of all the nations. That's how Charles Spurgeon preached this sermon. He thought he was talking about Christ. In fact, he asked his, his, his congregation, my brethren, does this mean or does it not mean that Christ is exactly what all the nations need? All the nations want something. They want to be delivered from bondage. They want some king who will lead them. They just don't know it's Christ. And he is, in fact, the desired one of all the nations. And beloved, is he currently not the Christ of all the nations? Just as he says, look around in our room, all of our bloodlines. This promise was made in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. Uh, we see in Matthew chapter 28 again that we are to make disciples of all the peoples of the world. We see in John 4 that Jesus is the savior of the world. And we see in 1 Peter that we are a holy nation connected to him who is the living stone, the temple. He is doing a work. Beloved, be encouraged. And in fact, this messianic fulfillment is seen even clearer in verse 9 where we find the third reason we can be encouraged today, be encouraged by God's promise of peace. Verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So he says that the second house or the latter house is more glorious than, than the former house, more, more glorious than Solomon's house. Now, 
Guys, remember, Solomon's interior was completely covered in gold. Solomon's temple uh, had contained within it the Ark of the Covenant and the stones of the Urim and Thummim. It had things that were never described in the second temple ever. But it's Solomon, the one who constructed the first temple, who said in Proverbs 3, the very, the very words that he wrote, that there is something more valuable than gold, and that is wisdom. And if we remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that Christ is wisdom personified. So what is more valuable than a temple, than a structure? Well, it's the very bodily presence of Jesus Christ himself. It is more valuable. The one who would one day teach in this temple that's being constructed says that he's going to destroy the temple like we talked about last week and in three days rebuild it. Christ is the fulfillment of this glory, the incarnate one. Consider the glory that Christ is written about in the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That means tabernacled with us, like templed with us. And we have seen his glory, and the glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen to how Hebrews 1 describes a glory that's greater than any temple structure. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Beloved, in the scriptures, the second temple is never described with such glory, ever. Not more glorious. In fact, it was also destroyed by the hands of men. But the whole universe is upheld by the word of his power, as it says in Hebrews 1. He is far more glorious. It's talking about Christ himself. And look what it says in verse 9. Again, in this place, I will give peace. In this place, I will give peace. If you remember back in Colossians, Paul writes, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Beloved, in our sinful state, we are enemies of God, enemies of a holy God. But God demonstrates his love for us, Romans 5, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 also says, because of the sacrifice of Christ, we are restored to a, a peaceful relationship with God. In this place, in this temple, and we're talking about a deep, abiding, strong satisfying peace that dwells within your heart because of the work of Christ. And you cannot be taken from his hand. It says, and Isaiah, as the prophet proclaimed, Jesus would be the Prince of Peace. And this is exactly where peace is found. And in this place of peace, yes, our sins are completely covered and forgiven. Completely. But in this place of peace, we also have righteousness that's been given to us. And we have the presence of him then who begins to live out righteousness through us. 
though despite the chaos that we live in, we have peace because of God who is with us. You have been furnished, beloved, by Christ, who is the place of peace through his death and through his resurrection. So how do we gain peace? We recognize our condemnation. We recognize our sin. And this is an act of humiliation. We have to recognize that we are degenerates. We, we do not choose a holy God. Have you come to that place in your own heart? Do you, do you recognize that? Because what you do in response then is to throw yourself at the mercy of God through Christ. Throw your, throw your sins on the altar of the body of Christ and let the, the blood of Christ, the holy blood of Christ, wash you clean. It's better than the temple that can be destroyed. This is the temple that cannot be destroyed because it was not made with hands. This is where you can find comfort in your discouragement. And we're not just talking about he cares and takes away your small sins. Everything that you have ever done in your life is washed away because of the perfect, satisfying blood of a holy God that was spilled on your behalf. This is the temple of peace. This is where peace is found. That's why we can come to passages like Matthew chapter 11, where it says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. You don't have to build a temple anymore. Jesus did that. I pray that we will grasp the gospel that's found uh, here in these passages of scripture. Yes, there's an old covenant that we've talked about. It was made with Moses and God shook creation and he established uh, the law and he appointed his priest and he established the sacrificial system and the day of atonement and, and uh, the blood of goats and bulls to temporarily atone for the sins of the people. He gave us instruction for a tabernacle and for a temple and to be a, a more secure and permanent dwelling place amongst the people. But the people could not keep it themselves. They could not keep it. But then Christ comes and he says, there's a better covenant. There's a better covenant that is sealed in my blood. It's better than the blood of goats and bulls. I'm a greater high priest, one that will never die again more sure and indestructible temple. This is the hope that we have today, beloved, in Christ. So we can look at the book of Haggai and see the fulfillments of God to a people in their context. But because we live on this side of the resurrection, we live on this side of Jesus incarnating himself here with us, tabernacling with us here on this earth, we can actually interpret the whole of scripture in a more profound and encouraging way than ever before. Let's pray as we transition to the table. Father, thank you for the word of truth. Father, we look in so many other places in, our, in the midst of our discouragement. I pray that we would come and dwell, Father, in your presence because we know that you are with us. We know that you are powerful to accomplish these things. Father, we know that you've made promises to us and you are gonna fulfill those promises. Father, one day in full. And so we do have hope, God. God, would you stir on people's hearts who are discouraged today, discouraged in their sin, discouraged in their circumstances. 
and help them to see that you are with them and you are all powerful and you have made promises and you have sealed those in a covenant. God, we are thankful. In Christ we pray. Amen.